Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. You know, we get pitched at Outsports a lot to interview people who are um, promoting a product, and it's almost always a no. But this week, I got pitched an interview with Rachel Rapino, who's with a company called Mendy. And I, I was super interested in talking with her for a couple reasons. One, she's represented the United States on the international stage. She did it uh, as a, a very young athlete. Um, two, I was super interested, frankly, in the product she was uh, representing, which is using um, CBD to to uh, aid recovery and, you know, as I get older, my body is uh, it's aching more and more. So super interested in talking with her about that. Plus, just um, growing up and coming out to her family, uh, she has a great story about how she didn't really get the chance to come out to her family because Megan kind of did it for her, um, her sister Megan Rapino. Uh, she also shares a wonderful moment in sports. Uh, I asked her to to give me a, a moment in sports that made her cry, and she she has a just a really great moment in sports that actually just hearing her talk about it made me tear up. So anyhow, here is my interview with Rachel Rapino. So I'm here with Rachel Rapino. Uh, Rachel. One of the things that I love talking to people about is the the lessons that they learned playing sports that they've that they've taken to their 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 career. What are some of the some of the things that you learned playing sports at at an elite level that you have that that has really have shaped you as an executive? Yeah. Well, first of all, Sid, thank you for having me. Very very excited to be here at SB Nation. Um, you know, I say this all the time. People ask me, you know, what are the thing, the biggest things that you learn being an entrepreneur? And um, my learning as an entrepreneur started as an athlete. The, the three biggest life lessons that I learned in sports, and I'll, I'll say just like the, the, the one, two, three punch, and then I'll kind of expand into it. But the first one is hard work, right? Because it is so difficult to be an elite athlete. People you know, kind of think that athletes live this lavish life. And although, you know, some of them do, it takes so much hard work to do what they do physically and emotionally. The second one is um, relying on your teammates. I played a team sport. So, you know, I learned very on that um, my success was also going to be dependent on my teammates' health. And the third one is learning to fail because as an athlete, you fail all the time, whether big or small, you have to learn to lose games, you have to learn to make mistakes. Um, you know, and so so learning to fail has definitely been something that has carried me through as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur now. Um, so yeah, going back to hard work, you know, I say this over and over again, especially, you know, being a leader in the business space, um, being an athlete, or just in general, like if you want to be successful, you have to welcome the work because it's definitely very hard um and you gotta you gotta be in the trenches you know and then you know the second one is you can't do everything alone you got to find the right people and you got to put them in the right places and you need to learn to ask for help um because you know we live in a world where it's not just a one-man show and then the third one is learning to fail you know i mean the the you've heard so many so many there's so many things out there about you know Failure is the key to success, and I truly believe that. And there's no better 
you know, there's no better lesson than um, in sports because you fail all the time. As a perfectionist myself, my 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 secret to sports was simply to never fail, um, to just to just win all the time, and I was often successful <laughs> with that. Um, but no matter how perfect you are, everybody fails at some point. What what is a yeah. what is a failure in sports that that stands out to you as as one that really hit you hard um, and and maybe motivated you or that you really learned from? Well, I would say like even till this day, some of the most painful sport memories are high school losses. You know, everything's heightened in high school anyway, emotions and hormones and everything. Everything just feels like it's like, you know, the world is crashing down on you. So, you know, Megan and I play, make my twin sister. So a lot of my story is a we, not a me, as you'll notice. Um, we played soccer and basketball primarily. Those were our definitely, you know, our, our top two loves. And we, we lost a few um, North State championships in basketball. We lost, you know, some league championships. And I remember those being very painful. But the one that stands out to me the most, this was my, I think it was my junior year in soccer. We were playing club soccer down in Sacramento. And we had a seventh-rate team in the country. So we were pretty good. Um, we won regionals and we were going to nationals in DC for the first time ever. And we lost the national championship game to this team from Georgia. And like, even till this day, that is one of the most like painful sport memories. I think our team was just so close and we wanted it so bad. And we, you know, went all the way to the national championship and we were like, just the, we were like kind of a ragtail team, you know, maybe had no business being there, but we just had some talent and a lot of heart. Um, but we ended up losing that game. And, you know, we still talk about it to this day. The great victories that I remember are the ones where I wasn't supposed to win, but I won anyway. And, and, and the failures that stick out to me are the ones where I really, looking back, well, gosh, I should have won that. Do you do you think is that part of why that sticks out? Do you think your team should have won that game? Like you had the ability to and you just didn't? Or were you or were you just just were you just outclassed? No, we should have won. We were the better team. And that's probably why it was so painful. I don't think we recovered, you know. I mean, looking back, like we probably weren't eating right, we weren't sleeping right, we weren't we didn't recover right the day before. Um, we didn't have probably the proper training session the day before. So, you know, I think I was pissed. I remember just being so pissed after that game because I knew we should have won, but we just weren't we weren't physically as prepared as we should have been. And there were definitely, you know, we won in college, we won the 2005 national championship and we lost every year after that in the elite eight game. Um, and I would say other than maybe my super senior year, because I tore my ACL. So my fifth year, we played Stanford at Stanford and they were a better team. I, you know, I was out, we had a couple other players out uh, who were on the U, I think it was the U19 or U20 um, U.S. national team, and they were away at a World Cup. And so, you know, we just didn't have, like, the the personnel um, to win that game. But the other two Elite Eight games also were really painful because we definitely, we had a really talented team and potentially, you know, could have could have gone on to win a national championship. And um, so those, those were a couple other losses that, that stick with me until this day as well. 
You talked about um, it with the the, uh, the high school national championship recovery, and and you now work uh, with a company called Mendy. That uh, recovery is a focus of of some of what you do, and I frankly I'm super interested in it because Rachel, my body's falling apart. I'm getting old, and I <laughs> and I and, and you I, and me I, both said you and me both. <laughs> I'm starting to look for anything that is going to help me. I mean, I went jogging yesterday for 25 minutes, and it took me the rest of the night to just physically feel better. Talk to me just kind of about <laughs> what what you all do, and 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 if somebody wants to engage in kind of the 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 benefits of 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 what you do with recovery, how what where you might point them to. Yeah. Well, first of all, Sid, you're not alone. I feel that way almost every time after a run. These hips are not getting any younger, that's for sure. You know, the older I've gotten, and now I have my master's in exercise and science, and I had a training business training elite soccer players here in the Portland area. I trained the University of Portland women's soccer team. And and as I got deeper and deeper into the sports science of everything, and most athletes will attest to this now, it is truly all about recovery. If you want to feel good, Yes, obviously, it's very important what you put in your body, you know, I mean, 80% of of what you look and feel like is going to be what you put in your mouth, but, and it's really important to work out and to do strength work and to do, you know, your stretching and to do your meditation. But all of that is part of recovery, right? Like the moment you step off the soccer field or, you know, get done with the run, what the decisions you make after that are going to determine how you're going to feel uh, in a few hours that night or the next day. So, you know, with Mindy, we really just like took a step back and, you know, we want to be in the sports world, but we didn't necessarily want to be in the performance space. And we felt like cannabis and other just whole plants can really aid in, in helping people optimize performance or, you know, we use the term stay on top of your game, um, in the healthiest way possible. I mean, the, the, prescription opioid business and the -the over-the-counter med business. I mean, you're talking about like an $85 billion business every year. Um, And if we can just disrupt a little part of that, you're talking about, you know, a a large number. And I think that a lot of people are kind of tired of taking synthetic medications that really don't, they just put a bandaid over the, the actual issue. You know, there's a lot of chronic pain in this country. There's a lot of stress and anxiety in this country and plants, particularly cannabis can, can, you know, really help in those areas. There's, there's obviously a huge stigma with, with cannabis. And as you try to talk with maybe Olympic level athletes or professional athletes, or, um, or, or even the, you know, the level that you represented the United States, the U23, U21, uh, do you get some resistance? Like, Oh, we can't touch that. Or, Or are people, you find people open to it? I think people are more open to it than, uh, than, than the public thinks. I mean, it's just something that's not talked about because it is so stigmatized. But WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, lifted their CBD ban a couple of years ago. And so that's specifically why we partner with athletes that fall under WADA's drug testing policies because we know they can at least take CBD so we've extracted, all, you know, THC and all the other cannabinoids, and we have a CBD-only line. Um, we do have another line that has the full profile of cannabinoids for people who don't have to worry about getting tested. But, you know, water lifting the ban um, definitely, 
you know, made a statement and at least they're, they're taking the step in the right direction of, of being open to hemp derived cannabis a little bit. I still think that they should just allow the full hemp plant to be legal and not just CBD because you never really want to isolate things, you know, like you want the whole plant working together to have the, the entourage effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're seeing more leagues being open to it. The MLB just like completely lifted their cannabis ban, both THC and CBD, which is amazing. And they're not even testing for that anymore. Now they're testing for prescription opiates. They're testing for cocaine. So, you know, that's a huge step in the right direction. NHL is doing some fantastic studies with retired players um, in testing, you know, kind of the cognitive effects uh, post-playing. I, I believe the NFL is doing some studies as well. They've obviously, they haven't lifted their ban, but now they're not testing or they're not punishing for cannabis-related um, markers that could be in a blood test. So, you know, I'm kind of just, I'm, I'm waiting for the NBA. I hope the NBA is going to, they tend to be the leaders uh, in the sports industry, very progressive. So I'm hoping that they, they lift their cannabis ban, um, at least in the 2021 season. Uh, I wrote the, I co-wrote the book of Ryan O'Callaghan, who is a former NFL player who grew up in Reading. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and a huge part of the book, and he, everybody thinks it's about this, this, this gay guy who came out and, and he played in the NFL. But to me, the, the most important part of that story is his struggle with painkillers. He was using, mm -hmm. he was using, um, marijuana to to dull the physical pain of surgeries and playing and then he got caught and and when he got caught he could no longer do it so he turned to every opioid and 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 it it almost killed him and and if if the nfl had simply never had this policy with marijuana he would have never gotten addicted to painkillers but because they did he turned to what they deemed okay and prescribed and it nearly killed him yeah well that's exactly it and that's why you're seeing you know high school athletes are 50 percent more likely to abuse or be addicted to opiates than than other high schoolers their age well why is that it's because they play sports and they're in pain sometimes and when they get an injury they're looking at their medical practitioners as you know trusted leaders and and what are they prescribing it's definitely not cannabis you know to to treat pain it's it's more highly addictive drugs and same with college i mean i had my first acl surgery at age 21 and i was given percocet and then i was and that was too strong and so then i was given vicodin and you know again i say this i love my surgeon i don't think he, obviously he wasn't trying to over prescribe me but it's just what like the, the norm was at that time um and so that that was my first stint on opiates and then i've had five surgeries since then and ever after every single surgery i've been on opiates so, you know, th there obviously needs to be some sort of change. Um, and I really hope that the medical community starts to accept cannabis soon because like Ryan, le like Brett Favre, like so many other athletes, my sister Megan, you know, it's like that's the first thing that they're prescribed. And um, it's just, it's sad. And it's no wonder why there's so much opiate abuse and misuse in sports. Are you working with some Olympians? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Megan and Sue are both Olympians. We just signed another athlete. With I'm sorry, who was that? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, Megan Rapino. I don't know if she's the, I, she's the team, the pink-haired lesbian people goddess. Go, 
flattened tramp like or France like a crepe. <laughs> People don't Did realize you that headline. I, I she makes so many headlines I can't keep up. Oh um, my god, that was the best one. Uh, people don't realize Sue Bird has won four Olympic gold medals. Like there are not yeah. many team sport athletes who won four Olympic gold medals. No, she's she is a goat. I mean, she Sue. There will never be another Sue Bird. Diana Taurasi is also a goat. I mean, those two together it's just unbelievable that they even played together at UConn and kind of were, are in the same era. Um, but they're, you know, I mean, they're incredible. If you compare them to the men's side, you're talking about a, you know, LeBron James, Michael Jordan status. Oh, okay, everybody. Um, God, I'm loving this conversation. I, 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 but I got to cut away from a, for a quick commercial. Um, we'll be right back with Rachel Rapino. Okay, we're back with Rachel. So I'm, I'm curious, Rachel, I know you've represented the, uh, the United States on the international stage um, with the U23 and U21 and U19 teams. Give me a couple of memories that stick out to you uh, that, 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 that have lingered from representing the U.S. on the international stage. <laughs> well, one, I, I was over in my first stint was at age 18. So I was still in high school and I went to Germany to play in like this little uh, cup with uh, the U.S. team. And, you know, I, this is kind of a funny memory. We're playing like older, you know, professional women's clubs. And we're, you know, of course, 17, 18, 19 years old. And I remember, you know, walking out to the field going to warm up and a couple players on a couple older Germans on, on the opponent side were on their bench smoking cigarettes and said hi to us as we were walking out. And all of us just kind of looked at each other. We were like, Oh my God, what is going on? Are these players like actually playing? And that's, you know, what they were doing. I don't know if they still do it or not over there, but um, that was definitely one of my earliest memories of playing abroad. And just, you know, being a young, naive uh, U.S. citizen going over to Europe and, um, you know, it definitely it still sticks out to me as a unique memory of just these older women, older Germans smoking cigs before, during halftime, after the game. Um, yeah, that one definitely sticks out for sure. When, when I go to Europe, it, the, the, the cigarette smoking is probably the biggest culture shock. It, it is mm -hmm. so different from living in Los Angeles. I mean, I, I never see cigarette smokers. And, and you go over there and it's in the, the bars and the clubs and the, it's just it's, it's everywhere. It's such a cultural difference from the United States. I can only imagine walking out onto the pitch and seeing opponents yeah, smoking cigarettes. Yeah, I know. It's an 18-year-old, and these women are just, like, smoking cigarettes before warm-up. And we're like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, there's, there's like, always that sense of pride in representing your country, but also just being on those U.S. teams. I mean, it is a, it is difficult to make those teams. Obviously, we have, you know, 300, over 300 million people in this country. So um, I think the pride is not just in representing your country, but also just, like, being a part of, of that pool of players. Um, it's, it's a, you know, it's an achievement, and I remember feeling definitely very proud to make some of those teams. I, I assume – your sister was on these teams as well? No, because May started making – I don't think she was. I think she, by that time she was, like, in the national team, like the full team pool, Got it. I think. Um, or she might have been, like – if I was on the 19, U19 team, she was making the U21 team. She was always, like, a, a team or two ahead, you know? How the heck do two – 
uh, elite level soccer players come from the same family? Like, uh, oh my what, God. what was it about? Um, I mean, I'm sure that you're like a, you're blessed with 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 natural ability and genes, but what 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 are some of the things that happened to you in your childhood, the two of you that you, you experienced that that brought you both to the international stage in sports? You know, Sid, we literally get asked this question all the time, um, and it's really hard to to like you know, answer it definitively. I mean, yes, you have to have talent, right? Like anyone playing at that level, you're talking about less than 1% of the, of the population. So yeah, you have to be blessed with a certain level of talent and, and a certain level of, of just internal drive and competitiveness. You know, I could attribute it to a couple things, maybe just being a twin and having like that built-in 1v1 partner and competitive ally at all times and everything we did that definitely drove us. Of course we, you know, we would play like these crazy games of one-on-one where we were just like basically bloodied and bruised and, you know, screaming at each other. And so I'm sure that that um, just, you know, helped us develop our tenacity and our, our like, you know, unrelentingness on the court or on the field. Um, I think that we were also the youngest of six. So we just, we had four other siblings to, to kind of learn from and, you know, watch them go through sports and see their mistakes. And, um, you know, and they, we were very supported and very loved. So, you know, I think it's just a few of those things. And ultimately we grew up from very humble beginnings and there was no college fund for us. So Megan and I knew going into high school that if we didn't get a full ride scholarship, we were going to the JC, we were going to Shasta college and, and then we were going to be there for two years, just like my older sister did. And then we, you know, go on to another college after that. So it was kind of like scholarship or bust, really. With uh, pride month uh, coming up, I, I'm, I'm curious you know, I, it, it was difficult enough for me to come out to my family when it was just me. But I'm curious, and I'm sure this is a question I'm sure you've been asked a, a, a hundred million times. But kind of, <laughs> kind of like talk us through the story of you two coming out to one another and then coming out to your family. And who came first? Mm-hmm. And I, how did that? How did that unfold? Well, Sid, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, I would not say it was smooth, which I don't know if coming out stories are smooth or not, but ours was definitely not. I, you know, I went to college a semester earlier than Megan because she was on the under-19 World, she was at the under-19 World Cup with the U.S. team. So she came in the spring. I immediately basically started dating someone of the same sex. And I, at that time, like, I had no idea that I was attracted to women, but I knew that I'd always felt different. And I, I knew that Meg would probably felt the same way we had never spoken about it but again we had that like twinship so I knew Meg always kind of felt a little bit different so I started dating someone and we ended up dating on and off for that whole year Um, of course we didn't call ourselves girlfriends we were just best friends right um who slept together every night so then (laughs) I finally came out to Megan a year later um, because we were going through a breakup and I was really sad and she knew something was going on. So I, you know, I told Megan, I, I was going through a breakup and I was dating this girl, but I still would not consider myself gay, bisexual, anything. I just like, you know, fell in love with the person. Um, Meg then told me that she was attracted to women and that she thinks she was gay. And then Meg pretty much once she came out to me, uh, that spring semester of 2005, once we kind of had talked about it, 
Meg was like, this is who I am. And she was, she's always been very steadfast in that. And I think she just felt relieved that she had a place in the world. You know, I definitely struggled for a few years after because I was still wrestling through my, you know, religious beliefs at the time because we grew up Christian um, and the guilt and all that that comes with it. But during that spring 2005, when we came out to each other, um, again, I was kind of, I was heartbroken. I was going through my first like real breakup. And so my mom came up to Portland because she knew something was going on. And, you know, I was at class and her and Megan got to talking and Megan came out to her and she didn't take it very well. And she was very upset and makes, you know, second reaction after coming out was, well, Rachel, Rachel's gay too. <laughs> and that's basically how, how I came out. Uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, which was fine. I, you know, I really didn't, I didn't care because I probably wouldn't have said anything for a very long time. So, you know, I should thank Megan for just blasting me like that. But uh, that was her, that was her defense mechanism was to tell my mom and dad that I was gay too. Uh, So that, that's my coming out story and Megan's. You know, you grew up in California, and people see California as this um, this bastion of acceptance and liberalism. But as, as you know, in talking to Ryan O'Callaghan and writing his book, there's a, there's a line that I came up with in the book, and it, it was essentially: there are two Californias. There's California, and there's Alabama. And you grew up in the <laughs> Alabama. You grew up in the Alabama part of California, yeah. so I, yeah. I can imagine the added. Um, struggle and pressure that created growing up in a very religious community, very conservative community. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it still is, you know, to a large extent, I think my family is, is wonderful, but when you go to Redding, California, you don't, you're not overcome with this sense of acceptance, you know, it's rural. It's, 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 it's red. The North state's red for sure. Um, so I think for Megan and I, you know, there's a little bit of, of like anger when we found out about the LGBTQ community because just no one had ever told us. And I was never told that women dated women and that men dated men and that, you know, some women felt like men and vice versa. Like we just never had those conversations. And so coming to Portland, which is very out and loud and proud, um, I was just like, you know, really shell-shocked by what I was seeing and what I was hearing. And, and although it was like liberating, it kind of made me at first like a little angry at my parents or my family for like not really talking to me about it, you know, but I, it, they didn't, they didn't know what to do and, and they didn't know the language. Um, but I think, I think language is really important and, and being able to attach words to things is really important when you're growing up and, and it helps a lot with your development. Uh, Rachel, I can't believe that we've been talking for 25 minutes already. Um, and I, I hope when I, when I come to Portland, we can get a donut together or something. Cause I just, I really, uh, I, I, I love chatting with you. Um, yeah. uh, but, but I do need to, to close this out. Um, and I end it, I end every podcast with a couple of, with the same two questions and I'm going to change one up cause you don't, you have no interest in Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Sid. I'm just, I'd be lying if I said I watched a, a movie. I know they're amazing, but I just... It's not. It's not for everybody, for and it's just yeah. the, the name of the podcast comes from a line in Lord of the Rings, and that's that's why I ask. And probably about a third of the people are like, "I have no idea what you're talking about," so it, it, it's it's <laughs> fine. But but this week at SB Nation, it's it's Tearjerker Week, 
And and so I want to ask you a, a, a sports memory, and it may be one you participated in or one that you watched that brought a tear to your eye. Mm-hmm. Well, I have two, and they both are, are women's soccer moments, of course. I'm not biased at all. Um, the first one, I'll start with, with the first memory, which is the 1999 Women's World Cup team. And, you know, I went, I went to that semifinal game versus Brazil in Stanford Stadium, and it was completely sold out. And then I watched the finals uh, at home in Reading. And, yeah, I think that, honestly, I think I was around 10 or 11. And that was probably the first sport moment that brought a tear to my eye. Um, it was so, so incredibly, like, intoxicating and, and motivating and aspirational to watch that team. Um, it was the first time women's soccer had ever transcended into mainstream media. So that definitely, that moment, uh, that peak kick by Brandy Chastain, just really the whole tournament um, was very emotional for me. And then I would say the second sport moment that always brings a tear to my, even when I watch the highlight today, I get choked up because it was so incredible. The 19, or sorry, the 2011 World Cup, it was in Germany. The United States was playing Brazil in the quarterfinal match. It went into double overtime. And the last 30 seconds of the double overtime, so it was like the 122nd minute, my sister kicks this bomb of a cross from the left side, and Abby heads it in the back of the net to tie the game. And then we end up going to PKs. And Ali Krieger, you know, kicked the winning PK, and we ended up winning. And then we ended up going to the finals, but we lost to Japan. Um, but that that quarterfinal match against Brazil, that goal, I mean, still to this day, I think is one of the most incredible sport moments. I think they actually won an ESPYs for that, um, and I still get choked up every time I see that highlight. Honestly, I'm I am literally tearing up just listening to you describe it. That's really cool. <laughs> you have to watch it. It's I said it is it is incredible. I mean, Abby Petter, the amount of focus that she had to um, obtain during that moment to, like, you know, watch the ball come. I mean, it was literally like a 40-yard cross. It was incredible. People who recommend everyone watch it. People who aren't sports fans don't understand how literally people say, oh, you couldn't even write that in a movie. How sports is just full of these moments where human beings – do these truly unbelievable things that you you couldn't even write into a script and they and they do them in a flash of a second it's mm-hmm. I, I it's it's incredible mhm i know and then it, they it's so emotional like the fact that sports can bring human bodies to tears like that is pretty incredible i mean it really does unite communities and countries you know, in the whole world in certain instances. So it's um, the power of sports is definitely very real for sure. And that's one of the reasons that I focus this podcast on the Olympics because of its incredible unifying ability. This, the, just the, the, the way sports do that and just the Olympics themselves. And so I, I, I the second question that I ask everybody uh, and you can't pick your sister is name an Olympian who has inspired you? Well, I'm going to go with two. And again, like these are some of my youngest memories um, of, of, you know, 
of the Olympics and, and athletes that really made an impression on me. I mean, obviously Michael Jordan, right. And that, that dream team, um, what was it? The 92 dream team. I mean, yeah. that, that team, but specifically Michael Jordan. I mean, he was like really the, the first Olympian to have that kind of stage in, in the tournament. Um, and he just completely transcended everything. I mean, he brought people from all over the world together and he put NBA on the map. Um, and then, you know, I think the second one is Michelle Akers. She still to this day is one of my favorite uh, soccer players, women's soccer players. She, you know, held it down in the midfield. She was the, she was the reason I picked number 10. That's my favorite number. She was the reason I played in the center mid all growing up. Um, you know, her just tenacity and her just like brute force in there as well as finesse. I mean, she, she truly like inspired me pretty much in all facets of the game. Um, and yeah, I, I'm a big fan of hers for sure. Well, Rachel, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me and, uh, anytime you want to come back here, you're always welcome. Thank you, Sid. I appreciate you having me and just, you know, letting me just ramble on your show and tell my story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we didn't ramble. I mean, to be honest, you know, you, you, you I, 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 um, we connected through uh, Mendy, and and which again is is kind of a, an interest of mine, just because of my chronic pain. But you just, you know, I, I, to be honest, I didn't really know who you were, and then I started digging. And I'm like, oh, there's a great, there's some great stories here. So honestly, I could probably, I, we could probably talk for another hour, but I, you have things to do, and it's like a long weekend, and I want to get started. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've earned it, Sid. Go have a wonderful weekend and, you know, happy Pride. Thank you for doing what you're doing um, and, you know, representing all of us. We appreciate that. I honestly have so many more questions I could have asked Rachel. I could have kept her on for a couple hours, but um, that we'll save, we'll save the rest of it for another time. If you want to follow Rachel, you can find her on Instagram at rrapino. Tomorrow, on Tuesday, the day after Memorial Day, there's a really cool episode of Level Playing Field podcast with Randy Booz. He's interviewing Matt Barker, who is a baseball player who was drafted by the Colorado Rockies a while back. He has a, a, an interesting story about substance abuse and sports and coming out. So be sure to check in then. I hope you have a wonderful week. And we'll talk to you next Monday.